All right, let's turn in our Bibles as we continue our study of David. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. The story that we're going to deal with today begins in chapter 16 and continues through chapter 17. But we, um, what we're going to do each week, we won't have time to read the entire story because often what we'll cover in any given Sunday will, will be a, a covering uh, of a story that uh, fills several chapters. But what we do want to do today is read a very key verse. It's 1 Samuel 16, 13. Last week, we introduced you to what was going on. We talked about the nation of Israel. We introduced you to King Saul that had been the first choice for king. But because of the turn of his heart, he ended up being rejected. You remember we talked about how Saul kept trying to please the Lord in the strength of the flesh. He never submitted to the spiritual disciplines of his walk with God. And even though we only gave it about 10 minutes of treatment, we learned that Saul finally got to the point where he had just crossed the line. And he asked for Samuel to bless him. And Samuel said, the Lord has rejected you. And as Samuel turned to walk away, Saul reached out to grab the prophet by his cloak and he tore the garment Sam, uh, Samuel was wearing. And Samuel says, just as you've torn this garment, garment, the Lord has torn from you the kingdom of Israel. And he said something that rocked Saul to his very core of his being. He said, he has taken from you the kingdom of Israel and has given it to a man who is better than you. Now that wasn't a cheap shot by God. That was a statement where God was saying, I took you from the most unlikely of places, but I'm going to reach to an even more unlikely place now and choose someone that has a different spirit than you have. Now we use it so glibly and so flippantly, we say that David was a man after God's own heart. It's sort of like when we talk about we're made in the image of God. We know the statement, but we don't know what that means. And to, today we want to talk about this man that was after the heart of God. And his name is David. We talked about Saul. We talked about the nation. We talked about Samuel. And then we introduced you to David. And this is the way the story ends in chapter 16 from last week and transitions into this week's story. 1 Samuel 16, 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, that's an important phrase. You'll see it about three times, uh, maybe four times, if you include Chronicles in the life of David, where the writer of Scripture says, something happened on that day, and from that day on, the result was different. From that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So what we see is the journey begins. What is God after? When we spend these 13, 15 Sundays on the life of David, are we going to end up just knowing some Sunday school stories? Are we going to end up just knowing some facts about David? Now, I think it's interesting. There's a lot of facts for us to learn about David. 
In fact, there's more revealed to us in Scripture about David than anyone else in the pages of Scripture. We know more about David. And if you ever ask the question, why did the Holy Spirit, as he superintended these writings, why did he choose to tell us so much about David? He could have spent the same amount of time on Abraham, or he could have spent the same amount of time on Josiah or Paul. The, the list goes on and on. But what we find out is that there is one man that the Holy Spirit focuses on for our benefit in the pages of Scripture. Now, he's not the greatest man. That honor is reserved for Jesus. He might not be the most zealous man. That honor could be claimed by several others. In fact, David is one of three kings that God describes as the greatest king of Israel. You say, how, how can God, how can you be the greatest if there's three of you? Well, we won't talk about it yet. We'll talk about it later. But there are three kings that are regarded as the greatest king of Israel. One had to do with their zeal. One had to do with their um, uh, specificity of obeying the word of God. So there's one king that was great because he turned to God. Uh, from wicked ways. There's one king that's great because he took every uh, letter of the law and fulfilled it to the best of his ability. But the thing that makes David one of the three great kings is that he was known as a man after God's heart. And what that means, there's a lot of sermons about what that means. There's a lot of speculation about what that means. But basically, I've come to the conclusion that what it means is this. David pursued God like no other man pursued God. He had flaws. He had weaknesses. There were times he did great. There are times where you want to say, David, what are you thinking? What are you doing? David, I can see this coming a mile away. Where's your brain? But in spite of those moments, David had something about his character that he was pursuing and pressing into God more than anyone else. I want to tell you that one of the greatest moments of my life was an incidental moment in chapel. Chapel had been going long. I was a freshman at Southeastern, been there just two or three weeks. And the president of Southeastern, Cy Homer, was preaching. I used to love to hear him preach. And he said, incidentally, his, this was just a statement in passing. He said, I want to tell you the most important thing that you can leave with. He said, especially you freshmen, I want you to remember that the most important thing you will learn here at Southeastern will not be Hebrew roots and stems. It will not be the Greek language. It will not be the order of the kings. It will not even be your Bible studies. The greatest thing you can learn is to recognize the voice of God. He said, you will forget your Greek and Hebrew. I remember when I took my languages, I thought, I, I put too much energy into this. I'm never going to forget this. It took me about 20 minutes and it began to drain, you know. <laughs> he said, you may not remember the order of the kings of Israel. And he was right about that. He said, you won't remember the arguments of higher and lower criticism. He says, you won't remember this stuff. He says, in fact, I want to tell you, you need to, you need to understand that the best thing you can do is, find, is, is have a library so you can get back to those things. But he said, there's something that you must learn. And without learning this, you will be at, at a disadvantage for the rest of your ministry. 
He said, you must learn to recognize the voice of God. He says, if you can be a person who recognizes the voice of God, it will take you through every trial, every difficulty, every problem. And that is the benefit of studying the life of David. The, 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 the way David keeps pursuing the Lord and going back to God. And I want to tell you this, I don't mean to sound arrogant when I say this, but I've, I've, you know, I've been to a secular university, I've been to, to, a, uh, to two Bible colleges, I've been to two seminaries, three seminaries. Wow, I've been to three seminaries. And I want to tell you, in every one of those places, except the secular university, that was kind of an animal unto itself. But in every one of those Bible colleges and seminaries, I found that what President uh, Homer said was true. There were people who were excellent academics. There were people who were excellent scholars. There were people that were, were so amazing in their scholastic abilities, you, you didn't even want to sit with them. You just, you just didn't like them because they were so much smarter than you were. But I tell you what I also observed in every one of those schools, the men and women that turned out to be great for the kingdom were not those that focused on academic greatness. They were those that focused on the pursuit of God, whether it was in academics or devotionals or anything else. Now, when we say the journey begins, that's another thing I want to focus on. It says from that day on, and guys, I don't want to pick apart these verses and talk about every half sentence. But I do want to tell you one thing that you will notice from the life of David. David's life tells us that there's a point where every phase in your life begins. Sometimes you'll enter that phase not even recognizing it immediately. Sometimes you'll enter that phase with great drama. Sometimes it'll be something that kind of slips past you and you don't know the significance of it at the time. But I want to tell you one thing we need to recover is we need to recover the value of the altar times. We need to recover the value of worship when we're really focused and zeroed in on God. We need to focus on deliberate uh, 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 um, discipleship and pursuit of the Lord because you will find that every time you go to another level, it's because you've had a moment of encounter. Now the principal characters in these chapters are Samuel, David and his brothers, his father Jesse, and Goliath. Now I'm going to disappoint you all. I know that we all like to focus on Goliath. I'm giving one-third of one sermon to Goliath. You, you, you know that story so well. But this is where we'll deal with Goliath. If you want to read the whole story, it's in the last part of chapter 16 and then chapter 17. Now here's the central truth that I want to get to you. Once a person becomes aware of God's call, they enter a lifelong battle to understand the meaning of the prophecy and the timing of the Almighty. Can you guys hear me okay? If you're able to bump up the monitor just a little bit, I'm having trouble hearing, I feel like I'm yelling. Um, maybe I, I, I need this message and I need to yell it myself, I don't know. Christian life was never, thank you, never intended to be an appendage to your life. Serving Jesus was never meant to be like joining the Rotary or Kiwanis. It was meant to be the overarching reason for your being and existence. Now, um, 
what we'll find is that as we begin this journey, we will find that Satan will attack us and we need to know how to deal with satanic attacks. We're going to talk about the nature of that next week. But we also find that not only will the devil attack us, but God will put us into situations where we think he's attacking us. That'll be one of the most frustrating things you find in your walk with God is that God, you, you, you'll come to a point sooner probably rather than later where you say, God, I thought you were for me. I remember saying one time in a, in a prayer meeting, I said, I guess I should have taken Paul's warning seriously. He said in Romans 8, if God be for us, he said, I'm beginning to wonder if God's for me. Then I got into my Greek class and I learned a wonderful little lesson about um, that passage of scripture. In English, it's translated if, but in the Greek, and, and we learned why this is true. In the Greek, it's not translated if, it's because we know. In other words, if becomes a definitive uh, type of statement, not if we know, but because we know God is for us. Who can be against us? We're going to have to learn to let go of the ifs if God is for us. If God will help me. If God loves me. It's not a question, it's an exclamation point. Because we know God is for us, who can be against us? But I will guarantee you this, as you begin your journey with the Lord, you will, you will spend a good deal of the rest of your life, now don't panic, probably not more than 80 years, but you will spend a good deal of the rest of your life fighting the battle to be sure that you understood what God has said and understand his timing of the issue. You say, why does he do that? Well, we'll talk about that later too, but I'll tell you this. The writer of Hebrews makes this promise. God says that I will shake everything in your life that can be shaken. And we say, yes, amen, but we say, oh, please, no, please, no. God said, I will shake everything in your life that can be shaken. Why? Because he's mean, because it's, that's just the way he is. No. He said, in order that only what is unshakable will remain. Every time God shakes us, he's getting rid of the extraneous things in our life. He's getting rid of the incidental things in our life. Sometimes he's getting rid of some things I've set up as idols. But he's not doing it to be mean. He's doing it in order to make room in order to make room for that which needs to grow and that which needs to remain. Now I want you to think some things over. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said the worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he is ready. Can I tell you that um, 15, 18 years ago, the first time I heard that, well I'd read it once, but the first time I heard uh, R.T. Kendall say that, he said, this is the greatest thing I've ever learned. The worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he's ready. Can I, can I be honest with you? When R.T. said, that's the greatest thing I've ever learned, I thought, well, you hadn't learned much. That's just not much. I mean, what does that even mean? But you know what happened? The Lord taught me what that meant. 
the Lord began to work in my life and I began to see in everybody around me, I began to see in my own life, it's true, the worst thing that God can do or allow to happen to you is to let you succeed before you are ready to succeed. And that's something we don't understand when we're young. It's something we don't like as we're on the path. But as we get older, we begin to cherish every time God has said no. We begin to cherish every time that the Lord has taken some idol off of a shelf of our life and shaken it and broken it to pieces. We begin to value those times. And we thank God that He didn't let us put our hope in the wrong thing. Foundational battles must be won before promotion can occur. And I want to say this, loved ones, the first difference we see between Saul and David, um, and, the, and David being a success and, and Saul being a failure, the first difference we see is that David went through a period of testing, a seasoning, and Saul did not. You say, well, why would God allow, why did, he, why did God make Saul king if Saul was going to be doomed to failure from the beginning? Well, I think there's several possibilities to the answer to that question. Number one, it could be that Israel just simply in their rebellion rejected God's plan and ran ahead of him or ran in a different direction entirely. In other words, even if you believe that God would one day give them a king, it wasn't time. Can I tell you this? The Saul's that you and I put forward in our lives are nothing more than the best effort of the flesh. He looked better. He was taller. He was stronger. But it was only the best that the flesh could offer, not the best God could offer. Uh, it, it could be a result of Israel's sin that Saul was put in that precarious position. It could be that God in his sovereign wisdom was using Saul's life as a warning to us. And I think sometimes, loved ones, and I'm, I'm, try, I'm hitting on a couple of, of, of real important pit stops we need to make on our journey today. We need to understand that God is telling us that the process of our maturity is superintended by Him. For instance, in the Scripture, you read things that don't seem fair and don't make sense like this. God hardened Pharaoh's heart and then punished him for having a hard heart. Now, there's two ways to interpret that, and I, and I think this first one is what most people buy into, but I think it's definitely wrong. The idea that God somehow in His sovereignty just says, Roy, I'm, I, I need somebody to be a scapegoat for everything I'm doing in the world, and that's going to be you. So I'm determining you're going to do everything wrong, and we call that the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is the most misdefined uh, phrase out of Scripture. There, there are people that believe that the sovereignty of God means God will do whatever He wants to do, whether it's fair or not, and He doesn't have to give any justification for it. Well, I understand the sliver of truth that comes out of that, but sovereignty is not about God making us do things that we don't want to do. Sovereignty is about the wonderful ability of God to make everything work out for good, even if it's not His purpose and plan that we do it. 
And sometimes God will actually, uh, because he knows our heart, God will actually enhance and intensify something in our lives that ought not to be there as a lesson to us or a lesson to others. So when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it wasn't saying that poor old Pharaoh was trying to do good, but God wouldn't let him. It was saying, and the Hebrew mind would have understood this clearly, it was saying that God knew the heart of Pharaoh. God knew what Pharaoh would do. God knew the arrogance of Pharaoh and the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. So God allowed it to happen. And, and don't be surprised when God becomes the, the cause of what we are rising to the surface. That's what happened with Pharaoh. I believe that's what happened with Saul. Now, you say, how important is this testing? Pastor, you're going really, to really spend time on this testing thing just this week and next week, and then we'll move on past it. But I want you to understand that the wilderness principle is one of the most uh, profound principles in Scripture. It's this idea. God will lead you into a place early on in your life where you are utterly and totally dependent on Him. Why? Jesus explained it to us in the Gospels. Man, it, because in the wilderness you learn this, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. When God saves us, everything's bright and beautiful. We've got the devil by the tail on a downhill drag singing tie yi yippee It's wonderful when we come to Jesus. And Jesus' plan is to get us out there in the promised land. But every one of us has got to do this right here. We step into a wilderness where there's nothing that we can depend on. See, we say, well, I thought the wilderness was punishment. No, the wilderness is never punishment. Uh, I mean, it's not initially punishment. It can become punishment. The wilderness is the will of God. Can I give you a shocker? The wilderness you might be walking in right now, you're rebuking the devil with all of your heart, mind, and soul. And can I tell you that you might be right dead center in the will of God? It's always God's will to take us into the wilderness. It's just that he wants us to stay there for 40 days, not 40 years. You see, whenever Jesus, whenever the Spirit came upon Jesus, he was about to begin his ministry, where does it say that the Spirit led him? Into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. When Israel was going into the land of promise, where did God take them? Into the wilderness. Can I tell you what the wilderness is? It's that place where you feel like you're in spiritual limbo, where you said, Lord, I, what happened? I remember the night I gave my life to you. I remember the process of accepting Jesus as Lord. Everything was beautiful. Everything is wonderful. Everything was better than a country music song. God is wonderful. <coughs> and where are you? Well, he's still in heaven. He's still directing. He's still guiding. The problem is, as he guides you, he takes you into the wilderness. Because it's in the wilderness you learn something that you can't learn anywhere else. And it is this, you don't live by bread alone. You, every prosperity preacher needs to hear this. You don't live by bread alone. Every Christian that feels God has forsaken them needs to hear this. You don't live by bread alone. You don't live by going from one high to the other. You become strong in the Lord by going in those desert places... 
you say, well, that's just negative. No, it's just positive. It's just very, very positive because it's ordered of God. And because I'm positive, that's where you're going to end up anyway. (laughs) If Jesus had to do it, we need to do it. If Israel had to do it, we need to do it. Now, the, the, the question is, will we pass the test? And God has a way of keeping you in the wilderness until you pass the test. I've known Christians that have spent their entire life in the wilderness. You say, well, they probably didn't even make it to heaven. Oh, no, 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 no. They were, they, they made, the, the promised land isn't heaven. The promised land is the Christian life the way it ought to be lived. That's what the promised land is. You say, well, I always thought the promised land was heaven. No, I'm not going to be fighting giants in heaven. I'm not going to be going through the things they went through to conquer the land in heaven. No. But you've got to understand, loved ones, um, and I think we are particularly weak on this in our churches today. I think we're even weak in our Assemblies of God churches. We, ha- In an effort to be a crowd-pleasing church, in an effort to be uh, a consumer-driven church, in an effort to make people comfortable instead of making them uncomfortable in the presence of a holy God, we have somehow concocted this Christianity that is all about you having everything you want presented to you in a way that will cost you the least possible amount out. And it's wrong. It's what Paul prophesied would come in the last days. People would have itching ears. People would desire a gospel of, of prosperity. People would desire a gospel of, of, uh, of ease. And everything's sunny and everything's wonderful. I want to tell you, it's not in the scripture. In fact, we're, we're go, we go through cycles where we make all kinds of doctrines that we pull out of uh, obscure places. And we've got to understand, if we would just learn the lessons in the wilderness and move forward, we'd be a lot better off. But more about that later. And David was the great king after God's heart because he understood the value of the wilderness. Again, a little bit more about that next week, then we'll, then we'll move on. Many people blame God for not keeping his prophetic promises. But loved ones, I want to tell you, you may be in the wilderness. You may not be walking in the blessing of the Lord the way he promised because there's the issue of timing. There's the issue of understanding the prophetic word. uh, word. Maybe we failed the test. In fact, I'm going to give you one more scripture and then we're going to run like crazy for the end zone here so that we can get done in time. It is up to us, the the degree to which we enjoy the promises of God are largely up to us. Now works don't get us to heaven, but our works and our obedience determine the extent to which we will enjoy victory in the Christian life. And 2 Peter 3.12, don't turn to it, but at 2 Peter 3.12, Peter makes this statement that just that really puzzles us. He says, in light of all of this, he says, keep looking for the Lord's return and speed his return along. Speed his return along? That, at first blush, makes it look like the more we do, kind of a kingdom now mindset, the more we do, the quicker he'll come back. Well, I know that is a transitive verb, and it seems to imply that this action will produce this result. But it's the same verb that was used uh, for Zechariah <coughs> and, um, and, um, and Simeon that says they were looking for the coming of Messiah. It's used um, 
in uh, Acts chapter 3 when it says the cripple looked upon Peter hoping to receive something from him. It's used in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius sent the messenger or was obeying God and waiting eagerly for Peter to come. I don't think any of these passages are saying that if we can get busy and build the kingdom faster, Jesus will come faster. But I think in every one of these texts, what we find is what Peter is saying is this. He says, look for the Lord's return. And this is the idea. Cooperate with what he's doing. He's not saying, I'll come a month earlier, Justin, if you'll get busy. But he's saying, Justin, there is so much good that will result if you will look for my coming and then cooperate with me. Get involved in a kingdom agenda. And loved ones, what David learned long before he understood fully about Messiah and Messiah's return. David was learning, if I am going to be a man who pleases God, I've got to cooperate with what he's doing in my life. (coughs) Now we see David in three scenarios. We see his service as a shepherd. That's the first one. This is David serving for an audience of one. Now, going back to what we talked about a little bit last week, after interviewing the seven sons of Jesse, um, Samuel says, "Is is this all your boys? And Jesse says, well, the baby brother, that was an official title, the baby brother, the, the, the wee one is out in the field with the sheep. In other words, Jesse said, I, I don't even know why you would think he would need to be at this meeting. In fact, one rabbinical tradition says that David had a different mother than his brothers. One rabbinical uh, uh, teacher says that Jesse had an affair later in his life and he took responsibility for the product of that affair and he brought David home so he wasn't, David wasn't accepted by his siblings because of the disappointment they had in their father. I don't know that we need to believe that Jesse had an affair, but it is possible that um, Jesse's wife died and he remarried later in life and did produce another son. It was David. But for some reason... He's, the, he's separate from the rest of the group. We know from reading the text that they all had problems and issues with him. Seems like the further along you are, the later in life you come, the more some people have trouble with you. I'm a baby in, in my family. My brothers always would say, yeah, mom and dad were happy until they had an accident and that was you. <laughs> One of my brothers, when I was a little kid, told me that mom bought me from the Salvation Army for 50 cents. And finally, uh, mom told me how to deal with it. She said, you just got to punch back at them. So I adopted the mindset that said mother and daddy were trying to have a good child and they just kept trying until they got it right, you know. And I still hold that over my brother's heads. I don't, they, they haven't answered me yet on it. But there was more at work here. Jesus explains it to us in the New Testament. He said only in his own family, only in his hometown is a prophet without honor. We don't understand what's behind that. We don't understand if it's just a natural sociological trend. But it just seems that whenever someone has the hand of God upon their life like David did, they're they're just easier to be accepted by outsiders than insiders. And it's not because they're hypocrites. 
You know, somebody said, well, that's because your family knows the real you. No, that implies everybody that God's hand is upon is a hypocrite. I don't understand it, but it's just part of our makeup. Um, there's one principle that the Old Testament doesn't expound upon. It's not until we get to the New Testament we see it clearly, but it's the idea of the priesthood of the believer. In other words, uh, Protestant evangelical churches, one of our foundational points is this. Every man, woman, boy, and girl that follows Jesus has the right to become just as close to Jesus as they want to be. They have the right to go before the Lord and ask for whatever they need. We have the right to come boldly before the throne of grace. And that doesn't mean we come boldly demanding what we want. It doesn't mean by coming boldly that we come and ask extravagant gifts. When it says that we come boldly before the throne of grace, now there may be a time you do that, but it's not because we're commanded to come boldly. We're commanded to come boldly in this regard. We approach God without any fear of rejection. The boldness, the audacity of me going to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, and, and, and believing for a second that I have an audience with him, that's boldly. And it's the confidence <coughs> that he gives us. Moses gave us a hint. He said it's coming whenever the Spirit of God came upon the servants during a time of worship. Some of the elders got upset and said, Moses, you're, you're the only one God appears to. You're the only one that the Spirit of God comes upon. Moses says, don't be jealous for my sake. He says, don't think I'm insulted by this because the day is coming when all of God's children will have the Spirit of God come upon them. And that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Guys, somebody ought to be shouting or slobbering or something by now. On the day of Pentecost, it said, It shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. See, it's not just for the spiritual elite to get uh, an inkling of the, eye, of the glory and presence of God in here. Right now in children's church. Right now in a child Sunday school class. The Spirit of God should be moving. And should be enlightening hearts. We've all got the journey. And it's all great in the eyes of God. Now. That's the service as a shepherd. Let me say this. Every one of you. Every one of us. As we follow the Lord. We're going to start out. As servant as a shepherd, the behind the scenes, the, 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 the beginning of learning the dynamics of walking in the Spirit. And can I tell you something, loved ones? We start, the place that we start at often appears to be a lowly position. See, whenever we get saved and then sometimes when we get filled with the Spirit or we, or we receive a call to something in our lives, we think we're ready for everything and we don't understand that God in His amazing wisdom has us start at a small place. You say, it's not a small place, I'm killing lions and bears. Well, lions and bears are important and we need to learn to kill lions and bears. But lions and bears were nothing compared to Goliath. It reminds me of a story I heard about uh, um, an Anglican candidate for ministry, or for missions rather. He said, uh, well, your education looks complete. 
It looks like your finances are in order. We just need you to go before the missions board, have your interview, and get approved. And he said, great. And he said, where do I go? And they gave him a name and address and instructions to be there at 6 a.m. Now that 6 a.m. turned out to be a cold winter's morning. He went there. They got there at 6, promptly at 6. That meant going from London to this house. That meant he had to get up about 2.30 that morning, travel to the house. He got there right on time, an early, as a matter of fact, for a few moments. And then was made to wait three hours before the missionary that lived at that house came down to talk to him. He waited three hours, and when the missionary walked in, he sat across from him, uh, introduced himself, and the missionary pulled out a list of questions. He says, well, let's proceed with the interview. He said, what is two plus two? The missionary candidate said four. And he began to ask him questions that were very simple that any elementary school student could, could answer. And he got all of them right, you might guess. And the seasoned missionary stood up, shook his hand, and said, thank you for coming, and then walked out of the room. And he turned and said, before you leave, it's getting chilly in this room. Would you mind going out to the wood pile in back of the house and bring in some wood and get the fire going again? He said, yes, sir. He went out and did that, and then his, his carriage back to London took him back, and that was all that he knew. Somebody asked him how his interview went. He said, I haven't a clue. He said, I, I answered the questions, I did what I was told to do, but I, I got no feedback. And it was just a matter of days before he got a letter saying that it was with great joy they welcomed him to the China Inland Mission. He was appointed as a missionary. He passed his test with flying colors. And he went back to the house and said, can you tell me what that interview was about? It was crazy. And the seasoned missionary said, well, you came in a cold morning at 6 a.m. Uh, you didn't demand favorable conditions. That spoke to me of self-sacrifice. He said, you waited for hours, though you didn't get an explanation or even a cup of tea. That spoke to me that you understood obedience. He said, you answered questions simply and without um, frustration. That showed your humility. He said, you brought in the firewood from the shed, even though it wasn't your job. That showed me you had a servant's heart. And he says, as far as I can tell, you complained to no one about it. He said, in fact, your roommate knew what was going on all the time. And he was instructed to listen to see if you complained. You didn't. So this tells us that you're loyal. He said, now what do we have? Self-sacrifice, obedience, humility, a servant's heart, loyalty. That's the five primary traits we look for in a missionary. You say, that was sneaky. Well, I say this with all humility and respect, but sometimes God is sneaky. And I want to tell you, listen to me, loved ones, this is what we learned from David. Sometimes God will put you through tests that you think are absolutely stupid. You'll say things like, my talents being wasted, my calls being frustrated. But what is happening? You're passing your first battery of tests. God will give you some of the most frustrating, ah! some of the most frustrating things to go through to see if you'll respond with self-sacrifice, to see if you'll respond with obedience and humility, 
to see if you'll be loyal and exhibit a servant's heart. David killed the lion and the bear. David did everything that, was, uh, that presented itself to him. And that was the first thing that God saw favorable in David. He had the willingness to serve as a shepherd in a lowly place. Now, we also see him serving behind the scenes. Uh, do, do you remember that... Uh, that uh, Saul had a tormenting spirit and he couldn't sleep. So what they did, they would call in David. David had a reputation as a great singer, as a good man. And there's a little bit of the chronology right here that gets a little confusing in these two chapters, but we don't have time to deal with it today. But uh, you see, this, this did not happen. David was not brought into Saul's tent and, and David didn't say, well, Saul, here's a copy of my latest CDs. And um, here's, a, here's a David the singer t-shirt. No, David was nobody. The king was in an embarrassing state of mind. He was being tormented by a demon spirit. What probably happened is in, in a king's tent, it wasn't like a little Coleman four-person tent. It was, it was probably, uh, in fact, uh, archaeologists tell us that the, the, the tent of a king was probably somewhere around 900 to 1,200 square feet. So what probably happened is they brought David in. They had a veil between where the king was sleeping and there's a chair over here. And somebody probably said, don't bother the king. Don't speak to the king. Don't go beyond the veil. Your job is to provide music. That's all your job is. Don't do anything else. And David, laboring behind the scenes, sings under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, plays under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and that evil spirit was driven out by the spirit-inspired worship of David. But it's very likely that Saul never saw David to this point. Uh, so you say, well, thank God, I'm finally getting a chance for my star to shine, only to find out the night is cloudy, only to find out that, yeah, you get to serve, but you won't be seen by anybody, and you'll serve behind the veil. That's the second level. That's the second thing that you and I have to work through, this service behind the scenes. Now, let me tell you something that's going to uh, really be the heart of what we're studying next week. You see, whenever God says, all right, it's time for you to move forward, God will usually do something like this. He'll tell you to go forward, and you're going forward speaking in tongues. Oh, Lord, you're so good, you're so good. And then you'll find you're in the presence of somebody else. And you'll say, oh, this is wonderful. I'm here to serve. But you say it's wonderful and it's here to serve because you don't know the person you just came into the presence of is demonic. You don't know that they're going through the rejection of God. Loved ones, please hear me. I'm telling you, the first time you start beginning to make progress, God will almost certainly bring you into the presence of somebody that is hopelessly broken and hurt. And while God is working His purpose in the Saul's you run into, He's working His purpose in your life. The stinking part of that is that I don't want to carry Saul's problems. I have been anointed. I want to be used of God. I don't want to intersect. That's the word, intersect. You intersect with hurting people. And hurting people can make you long for the days of lions and tigers and bears. Because I tell you this about hurting people. Hurting people hurt people. And it's almost a guaranteed thing 
that when you begin to make progress in your journey with the Lord, you're going to find that you're brought into the presence of one or more people that are going through the idea of rejection by God. And you're saying, Lord, this is the, I don't want this person on my team. I don't want this person in my life. And you know what happens? Most of us get so frustrated with the people that we intersect, we quit. Whether it's a marriage or a job or a church, we quit because God's favor, God's hand is upon me. I must have taken a wrong turn. I'm not in the right place because whenever you follow God, you don't run into demons. <laughs> Tell that to Jesus. Tell that to Jesus. Loved ones, I'm sorry. I don't mean to say, stay on this point so long. But I want to tell you, David has learned what it's like to serve as a shepherd. Now David thinks he's get, getting his break, but he doesn't even have the eye of the king. And David realizes that not only is my promotion not what I thought it would be, but my promotion <coughs> has hooked me up with demon people, with broken people. And I want to tell you, that's one of the greatest mysteries. Um, boy, I've, I've got to go on. But um, what we find in David's life, listen, David learned what it was like to serve in humility when he was being pounded with the hammer of hate. <coughs> now, here's the third thing we see, David. It's service in the spotlight. You say, well, all's well that ends well. No, once you get in the spotlight, that's just the beginning. You've not attained the ultimate goal. David would meet Goliath in the valley of Elah. And you know the story of David so well. David is so offended that nobody will fight for the honor of God. Saul's not willing to fight for the armor of God. David's brothers aren't willing to fight for the armor of God. Oh, I left it in the truck. I've got a rock from the valley of Elah. And the rock I've got is about three quarters of a pound. It's about this big. See, David, when it says that David took the rock, killed Goliath, we think of a little pebble that would fit in one of our slingshots. But those slings were weapons of war. In fact, if you've ever seen it, the, the thing that the rock goes in was about the size of two hands. And it could throw a rock weighing up to a pound. That's a... That's a Think of a rock about the size of my fist. It could throw a rock this big up to 105 miles an hour. I mean, that's, that's better than a Whitey Ford fastball. See, I used to wonder how that little pebble, boy, it had to just, just get right. No, it was something that hit Goliath like this. That's why the scripture uses the graphic language, his head caved in. Wow. So David is... Finally, in the spotlight, he kills Goliath, and he's going to learn some things there. He's going to face a foe unlike any foe he had faced before. He would learn that all our battles are really about God's honor and God's kingdom, not our own. That was an important thing for him to learn. He would discover that we cannot use someone else's armor when we go into battle. All of these are sermons in themselves. But I want to tell you one more thing about David in the Valley of Elah. He would gain trophies that he wouldn't use for years. We tend to think that everything God does, oh, I'm ready. No, put the trophy you just want on the shelf. You don't even know how, you're not even strong enough to hold it yet. 
put it on the shelf, and God can use it at a future moment. The armor and the sword will surface in David's life later, but it's not time for it to be used right now. Even in the spotlight, there are continued tests. Now, how do we wrap this up? The journey begins. Pastor, you've given me a headache, and you're saying the journey's just begun. Well, let's, let's agree on four points as we move forward next week. Next week, we're going to talk about friends, enemies, and allies. Then the following week, the most important message in the whole series is David and the presence of God. Because the key, when, when you find it out, the key to David's life is how he learned the value of the presence of God. We'll talk about that. But here's Christian life lesson number one. A period of testing is an absolute requirement in fulfilling God's plan for your life. Now, you are going to be sent to the wilderness. If you're not going to be sent to the wilderness, it's because you have a Saul's heart that refuses to learn. It's not a good thing to be spared the wilderness. The question is, will you fail or pass? Israel failed 10 tests. 10 tests. They batted 0, 0, 0. They failed 10 times, and a result, God said, then you're going to spend 40 years understanding what you did. Jesus went in the wilderness, batted 1,000, and was out in 40 days. But it's, you have to go there. Number two, you've got to remember that promotion comes from the Lord. I want to say this to every one of us, from grandpas down to SESL students, high school students, CIU students, you are being taught today in seminaries and Bible colleges how to be a great leader, how to be a manipulator of systems, how to get people to follow you. And very few places are teaching our kids to be men and women of God. There's a sin in the church of America, and it is we're teaching our young leaders to be leaders, not to be servants. We're teaching them how to manipulate people. We're teaching them how to manipulate systems. And God is telling us that we need to teach them to be men and women of God that operate in a different kind of anointing and a different kind of mantle. And part of that mantle is learning that promotion comes from the Lord. Number three, can I tell you this? Arriving at the right time is just as important as arriving at the right place. Arriving at the right time is just as important as arriving at the right place. Sometimes God will let you walk through a place that you don't like and don't understand, but you'll have that aha moment like Joseph had after years of humiliation and years of thinking my, my, my destiny will never be fulfilled. You have that moment like Joseph had where it said, then Joseph remembered the dreams of long ago. Loved ones, it's not enough to hear from the Lord. I'm telling you, some of you are so frustrated. You say, well, God promised, but he hasn't done it. But you've got to understand, it's not just about the right place. It's about the right time. I was, uh, in May 1984, I was being interviewed at a church in South Carolina that um, needed a pastor, and I felt like the Lord wanted me there. Uh, we were going, and it, it, was, it was in another part of the state, but we came to Columbia, because Ramona's sister lived here at that time, and, and she was just showing us around town. And um, out here on Bush River Road, um, 
she said, here's Christian life. This wasn't here. The gym wasn't here. None of it was, it was just the Brown Chapel and, uh, and a couple of part of the other building. And I'm driving along and she talks about how the church is such a good church and Steve Brown was doing such a good job. And, you know, I thought, well, that's wonderful. You know, um, May 1984, and the Spirit of God spoke to me. And he said, this is the church I want you to pastor. And I immediately rebuked the devil because the church already had a pastor. And there was no sign of him leaving. This is 1984. And on Bush River Road, I almost caused an accident. I'm saying, Lord, Lord, I know this is you. What does this mean? Do I call the district and see if he's resigned? What do I do? And all he said was, the church you're candidating at is not where I want you to go. This is where I want you to go. Obey me carefully and I'll bring you here. And that's all he said. You said, man, that's got to be frustrating. Only, only when I thought about it. I prayed about it for a while. I didn't go to the other church. I prayed about it for a while and the Lord said, take one step at a time and the door will open at the right time. And can I tell you the truth? I forgot about it for years. And when I got a call to come and candidate at this church, this October is 25 years ago, like Joseph, I remembered the voice of long ago. Loved ones, please understand, some of us can short circuit what God wants to do in our life, even though we have the right ministry, but we're not thinking of the right time. There can be things in your heart that will destroy you when you come to the place of your greatest ministry. And so God will lead you to different battlefields to get that out of your heart. And here is the last thing, the servant of the Lord must play the long game. And I don't mean to say this is a game, but what I mean by that is if you're going to have the destiny of God work in your life, you've got to think in terms of long periods of time. You've got to think generationally. We tend to think of Goliaths and we think once we whip Goliath, we're home free. Do you understand that Goliath was in the opening verses of David's life? The rest of the journey is what we want to focus on. You see, Goliaths aren't a problem. Goliaths that say, I, take your, I will take your life, they're not a problem. You've been trained for Goliaths with lions and bears. But I tell you what will throw you into confusion. When you run into a Saul that says, you will not rise. When you run into a Nabal that is a fool. When you run into an Absalom that says, if I were in your place... And then they betray you. Now, don't think Goliaths put you at the pinnacle. Absaloms do. Nabals do. Uh, uh, Sauls do. In fact, there's a book I want to recommend to you. It's called A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. I don't have time to talk about it today. But it's, I think every servant of God needs to read that book at some point in their life. A Tale of Three Kings. Now... You say, do you, Pastor, can you really tell me how this works? Well, Nabal, who we'll talk about in a few weeks, Nabal, 
his name means fool, and that's what he was. And David got mad with the way Nabal treated him. So David said with the strength of the flesh, I'm going to take his head off. I'm going to kill him. And David went with uh, a few hundred of his men to kill Nabal. And Nabal's wife stops him. And this is what she says. My husband is exactly what his name says, a fool. David, I know that you're justified in what you want to do. But this is what I also know. Everyone in Israel knows the hand of God is upon you and that you're going to be king. But David, if you're not careful, your reaction right now, when God wants to make you king, he'll look at you and say, there's blood on your hands. And he says, you dealing with this with your anger is about to disqualify you for the future. Loved ones, I don't have time to preach about Abigail today, but I will tell you this. It's not just a matter of being chosen. It's a matter of being perfected. It's a matter of being perfected. That's why one statistic says the average church member in America changes churches every 13 months. It's because they don't want to deal with behind the scene. They don't want to deal with the refining process of God. They're waiting to find a church that will welcome them with no restrictions, with no conditions. And usually God brings them to a church that is so hungry for workers, they'll take them in without discernment. And that's why the church in America is dysfunctional today. But God is raising up Davids and God is raising up churches that have a passion to please the one. Everything they do is for an audience of one. They don't have to criticize. They don't have to complain. They don't have to, they don't have to uh, manipulate the system. That's what I want to ask you today. Are you willing to let God really work in your life? <coughs> are, you, are you willing to not only let him help you with Goliaths, but let him help you with all the other obstacles that you'll run into in your life? You say, Pastor, of course I am. Guys, I want to tell you, it's, it's one of the hardest things you'll ever be able to achieve. It's not as easy as you think it is. Um, that's why whenever we think we've forgiven somebody, we do fine until their name is brought up. And then we start reliving that stuff. It's tougher than you think it is, but it's a path you have to walk. So you either spend the rest of your life letting God refine you so that you can take steps, or you try to justify yourself or, or deal with it yourself. And I tell you what's going to happen. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be belligerent, but you're going to spend the rest of your life in the wilderness. And you're going to talk about how my church isn't on fire. My pastor doesn't love me. My denomination is going to hell. The church in America is toast. And you're going to have a long litany and you'll have people listening to you of this is why nothing's working in my life. It's this system. Loved ones, I want to tell you, when you please the Lord, the, the Bible says this, when a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are made to be at peace with him. Now you say, oh, well, that means if I please the Lord, I won't have any trouble. No, no, that's not what it means. This is what it means. If Corey pleases the Lord and Justin tries to oppose him, God says, hang in there. I'll help you. <laughs> I'll make him be at peace with you. 
No, it, it, the Bible does not teach that if you are pleasing the Lord, you won't have any enemies. But the Bible does teach this. If you are pleasing the Lord, God will take care of the enemies. God will work in that situation. You don't have to get your hands bloody. Oh, I've got to stop. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit that is raising up David's and uh, male and female. Thank you that you are raising up a new generation of servants. Thank you that you are raising up a generation that will understand the presence of God. They will let the Saul's go. They will let the Nabal's go. They will let the Absalom's go because they realize that it's not me that can solve this, it's God. I want to pray for everybody that's struggling today, that's struggling with the destiny of God in their life. Loved ones, let me ask you to do this. I'm not asking you, uh, I'm not asking you to share with anybody what's going on, but this is what I want to do today. I want to pray for every young man, every young woman, every grandpa, grandpa, uh, grandma and grandpa that would say this, Pastor, I love the Lord, I believe in Him, but I have been so hurt by systems or people or churches or family or whatever it is. I know that God has His hand on my life, but I don't see how it can come to fruition. I am hurt. I am stymied. I am buffaloed at how to deal with this. And I want the Lord to help me become like David. I want him to work in my life. I'm going to ask you to just slip out of your seat and just come stand in the altar. We want to pray for you. We're not going to ask you who or what. We don't need to know that. But I want to, I want to pray for you. I want you to come right now. You may be young. You may be old. I feel that God has touched me. Maybe God has given me a promise. But pastor, I feel stymied. I feel hurt. I feel hindered. I feel broken. That's right. Come on. Oh, he's going to start you on such a beautiful journey. He's going to start you on such a beautiful journey of recovery. Anyone else? Come on right now. Would the rest of you stand? Because I know you've been seated a long time. Would you stand? We want to pray for these friends. Now, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pray for you. And then Pastor Glenn's going to lead in worship. I want you to just wait in the presence of the Lord. Even if you can only do it for like five minutes, just wait in the presence of the Lord. I'm going to ask the pastors to move among you and just lay hands on you. And we're going to see in the next two Sundays how God makes all of this work together for His glory. Father, I see these beautiful people that have come before you. Some of them I know their story. Some I don't. Some I know have been frustrated. Others I would say, well, your life's been so fruitful. But there's something going on in them that this message has resonated in their hearts. I ask in the name of Jesus for the Holy Spirit to come upon each of them now. The Bible says from that day forward... The hand of God was upon David. From that day forward, the Spirit of God was upon David. I'm asking that from this day forward, you would rekindle what my brothers and sisters feel has been lost in them. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would come in power. 
I pray that you would redeem what they think has been lost. I pray that you would restore what the enemy has devoured. I pray that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and that as we work through David, they would begin to see everything that needs to take place for their destiny to be fulfilled. Encourage them, Lord. Some of them, their spirit has been crushed. Revive that spirit. Some of them, their health has been lost. Bring healing and recovery to their bodies. Lord, we ask you to come in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask you at the end of this series, they will be leading the march of men and women, boys and girls that are saying, I'm gonna walk as a man or a woman who is after God's heart. Do your incredible work, we pray in Jesus' name. Pastor Glenn, go ahead and lead us in worship. I want you to call out upon the Lord and others will come around you and pray. To the others that you didn't feel that you needed to come, thank you for being here. And as you go, go with the blessing of the Lord and just love on one another. God bless you. Jesus.